right. Here we are. Here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. It seems like it's it's been an eternity. Scott. Well, yeah. It's to you and I. And it's to, you, seems to like, you and I. So the is, folks out there, it's like just been they don't know. a week. Yeah, right. Just another week. Here's here's the magic of podcasting is that Scott and I recorded because Scott just got the magic of podcasting. <laughs> Gather around, Ooh, youngsters. Gather around. <laughs> Children, let me tell you the tales of the magics of podcasting. The magic of <laughs> So we cause Scott had just come back from a whirlwind trip of of Europe and uh and so we knew that was coming. So we recorded a couple um and put them in the in the queue. Yeah. And then queued them up, uh, queued them up. And so while it seemed like you were all getting fresh episodes every week, some of those were recorded uh, several weeks ago. And so Scott and I actually haven't, they were in the can. And so Scott and I actually haven't seen each other in, you know, a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And here we are. This is, you know, us reconnecting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're like hours back from Europe. Yeah. Literally. um, Yeah. What is it? Like 36 hours. That. That listeners is Scott's commitment That's to this right. podcasting thing. Right. Like, yeah. yeah, he hasn't answered emails. He hasn't no. like, no, nope. he hasn't stepped foot back on campus. Nope. He's recording a podcast episode with all of you for all that's of you. Correct. Those are the sacrifices. <laughs> those, that that's what I'm willing to do for you all <laughs> is to not go to my office on no. fri- Friday of a holiday weekend and instead record a podcast <laughs> he does this for with you. my good friend. <laughs> <laughs> where I get to talk about stuff I find interesting. Sure. Those are the things I am willing to sacrifice for for my audience. Yes. For for the dozens of people who are tuned in. Yeah, do- dozens. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. So uh, I'll set this up because I, yeah. I, I threw this out as a possibility. So we've been reading and talking about, you know, this book, uh, How Minds Change from David McRaney. And I don't know, maybe, a, you know, about a month or so ago, we um, we uh, talked a little bit about the prologue and a little bit of a chapter one. And I've been jumping back into it because I had taken some time off to get some some academic work done. And, and now I'm kind of circling back and trying to I've been on a tear with reading. You know, I've just mm. been like, you know, I finished a couple books this week and I've started a couple and I jumped back into the McRaney text. And I was just blown away by chapter three, just like it just made my head hurt in the best possible ways. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, we've got to talk about this because it's just fascinating. It's just really fascinating. And it's all around the dress. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the best place to start with this is so that that way. I think everyone. Well, not everyone, but most people remember the dress. The dress is that, you know, I guess it was the Internet phenomenon that happened i don't know maybe about five seven years ago in which is it a black dress or is it a white dress and mm-hmm. and 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 mcraney talks about the the story behind it i guess it was a a mom who was looking for a dress for you know some family function and had taken a picture of the dress and sent it to the daughter and the daughter is like oh this is a really odd choice that my mom would want to wear this dress and shows it to her husband and the husband looks at it and says well why would she want to wear a white dress and the the daughter's like what do you mean a white dress it's a blue dress and so the two of them were arguing about what color the dress was and then they asked two friends who asked two friends and so on and so on and next thing you know it was a internet polls everywhere and yeah and and to me you know i i I was like "Eh," you know yeah, I didn't. I didn't find it at the time that interesting because it. No, but it agreed. was. It was a thing online. Like so many people. Like it was like new shows were talking about it. It was yeah, like yeah. the Today shows. What color is the dress? You know. Yeah, 
And I think that the coolest part about that in this chapter is it sets up this whole idea of objective reality versus subjective reality. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and like, how, how, how does that happen? How do we, how do we determine what is, yeah, maybe another way even to think about it is how, how do we determine what our shared understanding of the world is? Right. right. As opposed to my personal understanding. So Scott understands the world in a particular way, but what does it mean to have a shared understanding of the world? And that's where the objectivity comes in. Cause supposedly if we all agree on uh, on a vision of the world then that makes it objective now we have determined that this is the truth yeah well i mean it really when we start you know like one of the premises about our our show and our you know brand of teaching and learning is that it's you know social meaning making and social meaning making really you know comes um you know, it's about how we see the world and how, how we're able to, you know, discuss that and see that. And if so much of that is really impacted by our perceptions, like like the picture, some of us actually saw a blue dress, blue, black dress. Some of us saw a white gold dress. White gold and the, dress, yeah. And the reality is that they were both right in terms of what the picture was. So they found right. the dress. They actually went and found the dress. Sure. And the. You know, I don't know how important it is to talk about what the color of the dress was initially, but I think the more important thing is how the see different things and what the research showed and then what the what what they learned from this. So the Mm. the what they did this. So one of the I think his name's Pascal. I forget his Mm -hmm. last name, but he he was like really interested in this because this is like a whole brand a brand new set of of research areas for for him because it's like the you know the duck rabbit thing you know you can look at the picture and Mm -hmm. see a duck and then you can also see a rabbit you can't look at them and see both of them at the same time you can either see the duck or the rabbit and the and the vase thing you can either see the vase or the faces but you can't see both of them at the same time yep you know and this you know our perception is really you know affected by that like you can lock in on the one or lock on the other, but you can't. And that's kind of like what's happening with this is that, you know, our prior experiences are really affecting whether we see the blue black dress or the white gold dress. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. here's, here's the reason here. What I found fascinating about this. I'm sorry. I'm like nerding out on this, but um, they did they interviewed like 10,000 people and had them like, okay, you know, what color dress do you, what color do you see? Do you see a black or blue? And they found that the predictor of whether somebody saw a blue black dress or whether they saw a white gold dress was how much time they spent in fluorescent lighting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Because that's what, because the, the exposure and the interpretation of the exposure of the photograph is what, what got to this blue black versus white gold problem right is that some people thought it was underexposed um and some people thought it was overexposed and depending on which way you thought about it um that's how you got to blue black versus white gold but you didn't know that you were doing that it and and the reason that you did that was based on your experience in uh in lighted environments right so yeah it was really yeah if you were in natural light you're you tended to see the dress as 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 white gold right right um because you were you know used to seeing all of this color of light right because mm-hmm. you know natural light has all of the you know colors of light yep whereas fluorescent 
you know, there's a, a, a large portion of that is yellow light. And that yellow light, you when you're in those environments, you know, that's my science right here. I think so. Yeah. Do, yeah. You're doing some physics here for the yeah, people. Yeah, a little, little physics, a little physics. Yeah. So, you know, Pascal said, I wonder if we can reproduce this. Right. That that was the interesting thing. It was him yeah. trying to figure out how to do an experiment with a different thing, a different image. Um, yeah. And that's how we got to socks and Crocs. Socks and Crocs. Well, I thought the Croc thing was pretty interesting because they're like, okay, we want to use something. Cause like no one really had any prior experience with the the dress. I mean, the dress was like, you know, sort of like just, a, it was a dress, you know, yep. everybody could see it was a dress, but no one knew that, oh, it's that exact dress. Right. 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 And so they were like, okay, well, how do we uh, do something where people may have some prior experience with it, but not know what the, the like Crocs, like you, you ask me what color is a croc? Well, a croc could be any color, right? Any color. Yep. I, yep. I this little aside, I've never owned or worn a pair of crocs. Um I don't I have worn them, I think, but I don't think I've ever owned them. I've worn other people's. So you're wearing other people's shoes? Yeah. And crocs? Yeah. Just All on right. occasions. Like, you know, you're at the beach or something and you're like, oh, I'm gonna walk over there. I don't think I've ever owned a pair, but maybe I have. Uh, did you certainly i don't own them anymore yeah i i've like i think i'm the only member of my family have not worn a pair of crocs or owned a pair of crocs yeah interesting just a little little aside do you want to talk about that okay (laughs) just mention it yeah yeah. because that you know that's on brand with the show you know crocs no just you know Asides. Uh, like asides, that. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, like, right, wait, are Crocs are part of the brand? Do we need to no, talk about no. having a sponsor? Or... Yeah. It, it, surprise. <laughs> Sponsored by Crocs. Yeah. So people don't have like prior experience with Crocs. So they don't know if it's like, and people do, but they, everyone has different experiences with different color Crocs. Mm-hmm. So if you see a Croc, you know, if I ask you to, you know, what color is a Croc? It's like, they could be any color. They could be multicolor. They could be yeah. yellow, blue, gray, whatever. Yeah. And so um, what they did in this experiment was they got a, took a picture of a pair of Crocs that were in green light and with a pair of socks, with white socks. Mm-hmm. So in mm-hmm. the picture, the socks looked green and the Crocs looked gray. Mm. But the, yeah. so- the Crocs were really pink. Yeah. And the socks were white. And the socks were white. So it was in green light. And so green light, because of, you know, light that's absorbed and nice, that's reflected from objects. Um, that's why this, the Crocs looked gray, mm-hmm. right? Because it was, yep. you know, absorbing some light and then reflecting some light. The light that was reflected made it look gray. Yep. And the socks was reflecting green light. So, because it's white. Yeah. And so they asked people, what color were the Crocs? What color were the socks? And what I found interesting with this was is was really based on age. Mm. Yeah. Cause older folks like you and me and maybe people older than us um mm-hmm. have more experience with white like gym socks. Mm. Yes. Yeah. We do. Yeah. Yeah. And and so we would what we our brain would do unconsciously, subconsciously to us. assume. Right. Is go, oh, those socks must be white. And so we filter out subconsciously the green light and then would see the shoes as actually as being pink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is crazy. 
right? It is bananas. Yeah. It is absolutely bananas. Because they are empirically, like if you looked at the, the digital data for that image. There are it, no, there's there, no, there's no, green no pink. Pixels. There's no, no pink. pink. No there's pink no red, pixels. there's no white. It's gray. Right. But yet we were, we, well, not we, but people of our generation or certain, some people were looking at that picture and adjusting the image in their minds to be, um, to be underexposed or in weird lighting. And therefore they determined that it was a white sock and, and a pink rock. And I think the, the reason why I thought this was so fascinating was just the, like we talk about prior knowledge, right? We talk about prior knowledge and prior experiences and the impacts on that yeah. with learning. But most of that is like at the, the conscious level, right? Like the things that people can, you know, explicitly state, you know, Yep, but this like represents all of the subconscious stuff that happens. That you know, your brain—you don't even know you're doing it, right? Like, yeah. And you could look at a set of of data. You could look at a set of you know, and and a, a picture would be uh some data. Yeah, you know, sure. And 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 say objectively, hey, this is whatever color. Those, yeah. those Crocs are gray. Yeah. And some, you know, youth, our kids would look at that. Actually, we'd look at it and say, so that's it's pink. pink. It's pink. And our kids would say, ah, oh, no, that's gray. And and the thing is, we'd both be right. Yeah, sort of. But yes. I mean, from, uh, from our own perception of it, right? Right. So this is the thing. Like, So I'm going to read one little quote from this chapter that I like. So I mean, I have others, and I'm sure you have some too. Yeah. But this, um, there's a quote on page 80 that it says, it's called naive realism. And it's the belief that you perceive the world as it truly is, free from assumptions, interpretations, biases, or limitations of your senses. And I think that, for me, is, the, is what this is about, right? This idea that we all have naive realism about the way that we live in the world. Like we look at stuff and we're like, Oh, that I am seeing it as it is. I'm not seeing my perception of it. I'm not, I'm not interpreting that. I'm actually seeing that. So when I look out and say, Oh yeah, look at my green lawn. My, my green lawn looks exactly the same to me as it does to every other person in the world. Right. Because it is, it is, it's, it is a lawn and it is real and my perceptions of it are not in any way influenced or impacted by my prior experience or my my sense perceptions or any of that stuff. It's just that's the way it is. And and the point of this research is to say that is completely incorrect. Yeah, like everything is our perceptions and our experiences that, you know, impact those perceptions. Yeah, that filter those things. Right. Well, I mean, for me, I mean, I guess we know this. Like we have some you know, connection to this. Like I'm, I'm, I'm red, red, green, colorblind. Mm-hmm. And so my kids know that. And so when I, you know, try to match something up, right. Uh, I'm like, Hey, I, I don't see that. I don't see mm-hmm. that color or, you know, so we, I mean, I, I guess we all know that there's, we have differences in perception, but I think that the part that to me about that's what's the value added of this chapter is just how, large of an impact this makes on so many things right mm-hmm. like it's not just about being able to you know see red or green or blue or yellow or whatever it's about like coloring our perceptions 
mm-hmm. like that color yeah, interception. I got it. I got it. Nice. You know, it, it, so much, so much, and the the magnitude of that. And I just was yeah, that's what blew, blew me away. And I think the 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 little general. This is what I'm going to start mm-hmm. calling you, Scott. Little general. I know, you told me. Thanks. I did. Little little general. This is so. What they use in in the the chapter to explain this, you know, this whole subjective reality right like our perceptions of the world is like we don't actually see the world i mean we see it but our brains create representations of the world that we you know say oh this is what the world looks like to us you Mm -hmm. know we all have different you know perceptions of color different perceptions of taste different perceptions of you know depth like all of our senses are just representations of the objective world Mm -hmm. right and so the way it's described in the, in the chapter is that, you know, there's a little general who like, you know, like in a war room in our brain and, mm-hmm. and he's like sitting there looking at, you know, the big table with all the, you know, the, you know, the whole thing mapped out of the world. Yep. And so only way he knows what that map looks like is by, you know, like sentries coming in and saying, Hey general, this is where this belongs. And then he reorganizes the table mm-hmm. and, and the map, you know, he never actually sees the world he sees only the map of the world right that he's created based on based these on, reports right and so that's the you know we have these sensory organs that you know eyes ears taste buds all feel you know all of it mm-hmm. that are the sentries that bring information to our brains and that that the little general the, our brain little scott the general mm-hmm. in there mm-hmm. he's organizing all this stuff on the table and that table could be completely wrong in comparison of what the actual world looks like, but he would never know. Yeah. Or maybe yeah, he only know. has, right. Cause he only has his map. And I think, you know, this goes back to the original thing that you were talking about it, subjectivity versus subjectivity, which is, you know, then what we're trying to think about is, okay, well, all these little generals in everybody's head are doing their own maps, but those yeah. maps are all designed by the little generals and, and then what we do when we do the social, um, you know, learning stuff is we have the people talk about the map that's in their head to each other. And I think the the fundamental thing that is interesting about this chapter is what they're saying or what he's saying, trying the point he's trying to make in this chapter is that there is no objective truth things for us to leverage, to argue with each other, to try and convince each other, because right. it's it's the foundation of the idea that that he's promoting in this book, which is that you can't change someone's mind. They need to change their own mind because you have to look at your own process. And the process is the little general making the map, right? So you have to understand how the little general is making the map because that tells you how you're creating your understanding of the world. And so so the if you just compare maps, then that's where people get in fights because it's like, well, I I have I have the right idea in my head, the naive realism, right? I I know I have the right idea in my head. And so when I compare it to yours and you have a different interpretation of it, all I can think is you're wrong. Your interpretation is wrong. My interpretation is right. And therefore, we're just going to argue back and forth because you think you're right. I think I'm right. And so instead of talking about the process of how we got to there, we end up fighting about the fact that they're wrong and you're right. And we're seeing the world completely differently and as completely natural. And there's nothing that, you know, us arguing about it. Like I can say, hey, the dress is 
black a hundred times to you and you're still going to see it as white. Right. Yep. And there's well, no, and, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And there's no way I'm going to convince you of it because your little general has made it look that way or has the representation right. as that. Well, the only the, way you're, you're going to see it is if you actually, you know, change the conditions yourself or, you know, assess that or, you know, look at it differently. Right. Yeah. So that to help the little general see it the real way. You yeah. Know? Well, yeah. Right. Um, the the you know, the tricky thing is, is that we're always levels of inference above that. Right. So, you know, to your point originally, um, when you were telling the story about where the dress came from, you know, they were saying, oh, isn't this an odd choice? For my mom. Well, the odd choice is already a level up from the misperception. Right. right? And so we don't usually dig down below the odd choice level. We just have a conversation about like, oh, isn't that an odd choice? Yeah. Why would you do that? But but you don't get to the point where you understand, oh, I'm seeing the dress as black and blue and you're seeing the dress as white and gold. And so that is the fundamental problem here is that our process, what we're using as the foundation for our interpretations is different. And we're not recognizing that because we're not even talking about that. We're only talking about our interpretations, which is way above that. So that's the, the complicating factor here is that is we don't dig into the reality of how we're misperceiving or differently perceiving these things. We just talk about our own interpretations of those perceptions. And therefore we, we don't even realize why we're fighting about it. Well, I think that's what's, what's interesting. I think is that socks and Crocs coming back to that was the next stage of that research was to see if they could get them to actually the people who saw you know, mm-hmm. the the green and the gray to be able to actually see white and pink. White and pink, yeah. Yeah, and it was based on them being able to, like, actually look at it in a different environment and then go back and look at it again. I think mm-hmm. that's how they ultimately were able to, but it was them, the the individual who saw the green and the and the gray, to be able to, like, get additional information, not from arguing, but from reassessing their mm-hmm. own perspectives yep. which is on brand with the book right, right. which is the, the book is like we can't change people's minds they've got to change it themselves yep yeah yeah and it, and and they the, what they do in the chapter is then introduce this idea of cognitive empathy right which is understanding that other people do this not just other people that everybody does this yeah. and so understanding that and that the experiences that other people have that get them to their notions of truth um, are unconscious. And, and in the same way that ours are, you can start to, to understand and and feel empathic for that. And, and it allows you to reconsider those arguments because you don't, you realize that this may be a problem of perception that, that neither you nor they are aware of. And I think this is something we don't really talk about in teacher education or talk about when I mean, we talk about prior knowledge, right? We do that, sure. but we don't ever really talk about perception from the, I know like the, our ed psych people and our psych folks do, but in terms of how that plays out in our classrooms and how that impacts, you know, our instruction and methodology, it's not something I really spend much time, but I think I'm going to, yeah, you know, 
I mean, I, I certainly do it from like this, this chapter leads into a whole chapter that's, you know, we could talk about someplace down the road about epistemology. Cause you know, I'm a fan of that, yeah. but the whole, I, it does get into a lot of, you know, accommodation, assimilation uh, and very conceptual changey. Yeah, yeah, uh, next, next chapter in particular does that. Yeah. But, yeah. And they, um, but I think that, you know, really attending to that and recognizing that, you know, okay, when you share something, something in a science classroom, and you're sharing a piece of data or some information or a graph, that it's when we move to interpretation stage, we have to make sure that we're all seeing the same thing or mm. trying to get people to at least build a consensus around what that thing is. Don't just assume that the consensus exists, mm-hmm. right? Because we're all yeah. looking at the same piece of data. Hold on. We're not all looking at the same piece of data mm-hmm. because we're all looking at maybe the same object, but how our brains are interpreting that or representing that by the little general may not be the same. And so at least spending some time talking about that and saying, okay, what exactly do you see? Mm-hmm. All right. And then digging into that, I think that that is a to me one of the like I think starting points of being attending to this right mm-hmm. is at least getting that out in the ocean, open in the beginning to like really you know establish some sort of consensus that we can build upon mm-hmm. not assuming that the consensus exist, exists because everybody's looking at the same thing because they're yeah. not you know? yeah right and um, yeah I mean I think the the import it, it puts a different spin on the way we think about kids coming with their own experiences because we talk about that as an asset and and you know that we want kids to come to class with their experiences with their own ideas and contribute those because it's valuable to have a diversity of ideas and, and experiences but it also puts uh, on that um the idea that, well, those experiences are also going to shape the way that students perceive things. And so we need to be aware of that as well. Um, so that when we're, when we're having conversations about observations they're making or, or interpretations of data or whatever it is that we understand that kids are going to have different interpretations of those things. And we need to be able to um, support them in having conversations about that so that they can understand that they're, they're having different interpretations, at least in part because of their experiences. And, uh, and so I think that's a, that's an interesting piece of this too, is that while we see kids experiences as assets, they also do change the way they perceive the world. And that makes the idea of mutual understanding a little more complicated in a classroom to really understand other people's ideas. Yeah. Like, I mean, just the, the fact that the folks who saw the one color dress was just based on their, you know, experiences in fluorescent light. Yeah. That to me, that, that blew my mind. Yeah. That, and it was it's like, right. And the fact that they dug into it to figure out that that was the, the, the factor. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, that I think says, okay, when people come to uh, our classrooms, that those prior experiences are assets um, but we have to be really mindful of the fact that it's it's going to impact how they see the things in our classrooms. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm not saying positively or negatively, it just is. And mm-hmm. so while that is an asset for us to be able to draw upon in our classrooms, 
we also have to be really mindful of the fact that it's going to impact how they see data, how they you know, interpret data, how like, and all of that stuff is, I think, really critical for us to attend to as, as we teach students. Yeah. Cause ultimately we are, we are trying to change their minds in terms of helping them understand scientific ideas in, and understand the natural world through that frame, but recognizing that we aren't starting with a shared sense of objective reality for all of us is really important in that process, right? Like we got to say, Hey, this is all interpretation. And, and as a result, we've really got to talk about it and be clear and really understand each other. Otherwise we're going to be fighting over things that are not really about the science or the ideas or the understanding of the natural world, but are going to be about our own perceptions and differences in perceptions of, um, of the world. So I think that that is a fascinating thing for science folks. Absolutely. Yeah. Chapter three of uh, how minds change. Yeah. yeah. Good book. It's a good, good. book. Yeah. I give it two thumbs up. Thumbs up. <laughs> do we each right. give one and that's how we yeah. get to do, or do we each give two? That would be All four. Right. That would be four thumbs up. That'd be a lot uh, of thumbs. Many thumbs. Yeah. All right. All right. So, I mean, it's been a it's been a while since we've talked. So, I have so many joys All right. that I can share, but I'm just going to limit it to one. Yeah, I'm sure as you you know gallivanted around Europe, you know, <laughs> gallivanted. You, know <laughs> yeah. you probably had a joy or two in there, right? Yeah, I have a few joys from there. Yeah, you know? I can probably pick one. Yeah, and you were in Italy, right? That's right. We were on the western sort of western coast of Italy, and then I mean, Ireland. So. Yeah. So did you have any gelato? I mean, that's the important course. Like, of course yeah. I had gelato. Yeah. I mean, what am I, an animal? Yeah. I, I know. Gelato. Yeah. Like we had lots, lots of, lots of food and yeah. wine. That nice. was sort of the core of the, I mean, there was lots to the Italian trip, but yes. But so you, you want know, to share your joy? Do you want to go or you want me to go? Sure. I, I'll share my joy. Um, so I'll, I'll pick something from the, from the um, trip um and and really it's it's a cultural thing um so so italy's like one of the things i love of, about traveling is you you get to understand and experience you know other cultures and how they reorganize not reorganize how they organize their lives differently you know this fits right in with today's thing about differences in perception right um so italians uh are not big breakfast people um they do a lot of coffee and then, but, but one of the traditions they have is what's called aperitivo, which is like this window of time between basically six and eight 30, um, which is after lunch, but before dinner, because most Italians eat dinner much later, like eight, eight thirty nine. Um, so this aperitivo time is sort of like a happy hour thing. I don't know how you describe it exactly, but you know, all the bar, many of the bars and restaurants will have aperitivo as part of their like thing um, that you can come in. And, and basically during that time, if you go into a bar and you buy a drink, there's little snacks and things that are included. And, um, but it also is just a cultural thing that, you know, you go to someone's house for aperitivo and they have some. So I just, I liked that as a thing that, you know, and I mean, the Italians have a much different take on, well, almost everything probably, but, um, but the way they think about drinking isn't, you know, Americans tend to drink heavily, 
Um, and Italians tend to drink lightly, but over longer periods. Um, so, uh, it was, it was just nice to have a different rhythm to your life. Uh, and, and that particular thing, aperitivo, that time I really liked. And I liked the idea of like just light snacks and wine and hanging out and chatting and, um, whether that's with, you know, friends or your family or whatever. Um, it's, it's just a nice time and it, and it brought me a lot of joy during the trip. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, uh, in in Sweden they have a fika time. It's like fika. a time fika, uh. and it's a time where like you just stop the day. It's like mid afternoon, uh-huh. and yeah. have a little piece of chocolate and sit oh. and just you know. Nice. It's like it's like a little mindfulness thing. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, it's yeah. like tea time in England. I mean, lots of cultures have some version of this, but yeah, not yeah, not good. not us, not, not America. Americans, not Americans. No, too busy. So I have, um, I'm excited to share this. I've, I, I was like going, what, what has really brought me the most joy over the last handful of weeks? And I, uh, I was going to be nerdy. It's like my, my ice cream nerdiness. Oh, all right, um, all right, all right. So, you know, I, I, I have a ton of ice cream cookbooks, like a ton. Mm-hmm. I think I have like, if I go to like a, you know, a, a bookstore, I'll look at, oh, you know, do I, what, what do they have? Or if I go to like, you know, a used bookstore or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm always looking to see what, what they have because I'm always looking for new ideas and new techniques and, and stuff. Uh, so I came across this book in a magazine. I was looking at a magazine a couple, you know, a couple weeks ago and I, there was a review of a book called Grapes, Great Scoops. Mm-hmm. And right. I have a book called The Perfect Scoop. And I was like, oh, this sounds kind of similar. Is the same author? No, it is not. This is from a person not named Amelia Ryan, who runs uh, the Mary Dairy in Ottawa, Canada. Mm. And right. so um, what's interesting about this is that the book, um, it's, it's allergen-free. So this is oh. something that no nuts in it. And they also specialize on doing um dairy free and also vegan oh, recipes cool. which i have have i have some friends who are lactose tolerant some people mm-hmm. who are really you know uh, allergic to different things and i was like oh that's interesting and and so before i bought the book i went looking online at some of the recipes and i was like a lot of these recipes are very similar to the recipes i'm already make hmm. and so like like i have a pretty straight vanilla that i make has the same sort of thing and i was looking at their vanilla recipe and i was like oh my gosh this is like my recipe mm. so I, we all like and so that to me was like the the entry point where i was like okay maybe this book's going to be pretty good well gosh i got it and it was like mind blowingly awesome and i just sat and i i was like a kid in a candy store like i stood sat there and just looked at every single recipe and studied every single one and there's so many techniques that i've already incorporated so i've made like two or three different recipes from this already one's a cookie dough the cookie dough mm. i their cookie dough recipe the edible cookie dough was much better than mine the one i was using mm. so i've just scrapped mine i'm using theirs from now on um then there's uh i made a uh raspberry cheesecake mm. which was so good mm. you know and uh yeah there's a uh a recipe i'm gonna make called trash panda which is like everything and then there's a uh a cake batter one because uh i I like uh, like cake you like a cake batter i like i like cake and so cake and like frosting yeah yeah, i'm gonna be making some ice cream out of this so since it's the beginning of summer i see this is going to be 
perfect time for it. I'm so excited that that um you know kids have been looking through the book and saying, Dad, can you make this? Can you make this? Mm-hmm. Yes, I can. Yes, we can I make can. it. And I also want to like there's one those dairy free ones. I like I said, I have a couple like my my sister in law, she's uh she's gonna be visiting this summer. I'm gonna make it. Um, because I really want to see like the other ones I've made, not like I made one with oat milk. It was gross. I made another one that was, uh, not from milk and it was doing, using different things and it was like not good at all. This one uses coconut milk Hmm. and, and uses an interesting process that I'm, I'll, you know, I'm anxious to try. Hmm. Cool. And have you, have you ever made gelato? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know it's basically, it's probably very similar. Yeah. It's just different fat contents. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, gelato is my go-to. If I go someplace, I'm like going gelato is the, cause I, mm. I like that. It's a, it's a richer ice cream. It's like, yeah. it's something where you, you can eat a little bit of it and just find great joy. Whereas, um, you know, ice cream tends to be, you know, very airy, right. Yeah. And not yeah, as yeah. dense. And, and it's like, then you eat more of it. Yeah. yeah. That's fair. That, yeah. Yeah. Well, I had, um, I, while while we were in Italy, one of the places had this specialty gelato that uh, maybe it was a sorbetto. I don't know because I don't think it had any actual dairy in it. But it was basil, olive oil. So it was a it was like almost like a savory. Um, yeah. yeah. So I don't know if you've n- tried that. I before. have wanted to make an olive oil gelato for years, and no one wants me to make it because it sounds gross to them, and well, I'm like. I would say that this this was basil, olive oil, and lemon. I think were the core of the ingredients, and that it sounds was awesome. Very refreshing and very surprising. I mean, it's not savory in the sense that it was like salty. It was savory yeah. in the sense that it's not super sweet, but it was very refreshing. So yeah, that's that sounds awesome. Yeah. So, ice cream. Cool ice cream. Yeah. How can you yeah, say no to that? Uh, we'll see yeah. you next time. See you then. Bye now. 